Olivier, Olivier. Yes. Did you uh, make any New Year's resolutions? Um, no. I didn't really make any. I wrote in my diary. I was just like, oh, it's, I'm supposed to make some kind of promise New Year, and uh, everyone's deciding to do things. I'm not. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to episode one, year two of the weekly economics podcast. Yes, we're back for a new term. Thank you so much to everyone who raided their piggy banks to bring us back in 2016. At least he gets me out of the house. So on with the show, where this week I am back talking to Olivier Vardakoulias, economist here at the New Economics Foundation, about whether rumours of a coming economic crash are true. 2016 could make the Great Depression look like child's play. Day by day, the evidence of a global slowdown is building. This year opens with a dangerous cocktail of new threats. The Chinese economy has been slowing for some time. The American economy will be strangled and could very well crash and burn. Sell everything, says RBS. China, emerging markets slow down, commodity prices in a bit of a funk. There doesn't seem to be any of a letter. This year, 2016, is, many economists now believe, looking a lot like the beginning of 2008, but financial Armageddon. In a crowded hall, exit doors are small. So hi, Olivier. Uh, welcome back to the Weekly Economics Podcast and Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's just what I'm supposed to say. I don't really mean it. Um, so it's potentially actually not a Happy New Year in economics, as there are rumours that 2016 might be the year of another economic crash. Boo. Uh, in the last week alone, Royal Bank of Scotland economists have advised investors to sell everything except high quality bonds. And even George Osborne is talking about a dangerous cocktail of new threats uh, to the economy. Is all of this true, Olivier? Are we looking at a repeat of 2008 here in 2016? Well, I think talking about a repeat or a replay of 2008 is is a bit exaggerated, okay? Uh, in the sense of, you know, seeing um, an acute crash of the stock market, uh, serial defaults of financial institutions, subsequent collapse of financial intermediation, uh, and all these things that eventually spilled over, you know, the real economy. And we have to put that into perspective and remember as well that 2008 is a once-in-a-generation event, okay, like the 1929 crash. And the idea that, you know, these events will start happening every fifth year is reminds me a bit of an old adage that economists successfully predicted 10 out of the last five uh, economic crisis. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't predict the, the right one, <laughs> critically. Uh, but uh, seriously, uh, to, to come back to your question, what we have here is a simultaneous building of many different types of risks. We have a constellation of risks. And all these are ultimately linked to the spillovers or the shockwaves of 2008, both in terms of you know, the, the, the reasons for which 2008 happened, as well uh, in terms of how this crisis was dealt with. Just to give you an example, uh, quantitative easing programs, which basically consisted in printing money and giving them to the banks, to financial institutions, hoping that this would result in investment in the real economy. Well, it seems now that this wasn't a great way of dealing with the crisis. Yes, it averted the worst, but what we saw in the aftermath of that was basically the building of new bubbles. Uh, financial institutions use this money to finance new bubbles in emerging markets 
and in things like the UK house market. So basically, I think that what investors are seeing right now or thinking is that maybe a lot of these assets are overvalued. They don't reflect uh, economic fundamentals or the economic underlying performance of, of real variables, if you want. And therefore, they're feeling a bit nervous. We may see some crashes around the world, but I don't think we're going to see a 2008-like event in the core of the global economy. So one of the biggest uh, economic headlines of the moment uh, that I've uh, heard about in the media is the fall of the price of oil and uh, other commodities. Iron ore, for example, uh, which is having a big effect on the UK steel industry, for example. Um, Is that the biggest factor in people's predictions about uh, an economic crash this year? So the fall in oil and commodity prices is creating financial concern for specific countries and specific areas of the world. Uh, For example, you know, a fall in oil prices will definitely mean that some countries such as uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Brazil as well, you know, will experience a, a big strain in terms of their export revenue and their public finances. Low commodity prices mean exactly the same thing for countries which are actually exporting commodities to China. Uh, because China is experiencing a slowdown, this means that you know it imports less of these commodities and therefore for many countries around the world in Latin America and Africa and in South Asia, this means reduced export revenue. Now, if you put that into the wider context, uh, which is heavy capital outflows out of these countries, this means that you may observe some crises around the developing world. Uh, That doesn't mean a full-blown crisis, so it's not the only factor which makes uh, investors nervous, but it is definitely one of them. So um, you have just mentioned China there, and one of the other big stories uh, that many people have been hearing about is um, all the problems with the Chinese stock market. Um, How closely related are the problems with the Chinese economy and um, the price of oil and iron? So we shouldn't confuse cause and effect here. Uh, The low prices of oil don't have much to do with the Chinese economy. They have to a certain extent, but not, you know, it's not the only factor. Uh, The low price of commodities are more of a consequence of China's slowdown. So it's not like the stock market in China is falling because the price of commodities is low. I'm not that worried, unlike many Uh, observers of the Chinese stock market as such are more worried about the Chinese slowdown. This is because the Chinese stock market is extremely small relative to the size of the Chinese economy. Uh, And as well, you know, there are many institutional reasons for which it is currently falling. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details, but basically there are many types of regulations of the Chinese state, which means that investors are nervous and selling off assets because they know that maybe tomorrow morning they won't be able to do so. So we shouldn't, you know, uh, compound all these things together. There are kind of different issues. Okay. So um, I, I want to sneak a, a, a cheeky question in. Is this the end of the oil age? You have to look at something like the scandal with uh, Volkswagen and its attempts <laughs> to um, trick people into thinking that its cars are more energy efficient than, than they are. But, you know, price of oil, well, end of the oil age? The, the price of oil is is collapsing. I mean, it's not really related to the end of the oil age, no. Uh, the, the price of oil is collapsing for both for supply and for demand reasons. So on the supply side, the OPEC has decided to basically flood the world 
with oil in order to kill off the American shale industry. This is their strategy. Uh, because this industry is only viable at high oil prices. Um, you know, they're trying to kill it off by reducing the price of oil. So this is one factor. The other factor is reduced demand across the global economy because you have an economic activity slowdown, less imports in a series of countries such as China. No, oh, so it's not because we're all going green and we're going to save the planet. Not really, no. No, Olivier. Um, so in previous episodes, we've talked about the low price of oil and other commodities leading to low inflation. Uh, you can do as a jargon buster on uh, inflation very quickly if you don't mind as well. But as the politicians always uh, say on low oil prices, that means low petrol prices in the pumps. Isn't that a good thing for all of us? Except for me, obviously, as a cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> so in inflation, I mean, the inflation rate measures, you know, the rate of increase of prices, uh, usually on a year on year, on month on month basis in an economy. Now, of course, you know, in the short term, because there are short term and medium to long term effects on the short term, you know, it may be great news because you increase the purchasing power of the average person. You have to remember, you know, a, re a reduction in the price of oils or, or other commodities basically trickle to many other things. It's not just the oil you, you pump into your car. That's a short-term effect. So basically what it means that you're going to have more purchasing power because things are going to be cheaper, assuming you have the same wage, right? Now, what happens in the medium term is a completely different story. When there are deflationary expectations in an economy, what happens is that companies expect a reduced profitability, right? Because they have to sell at a lower price. And in order to do that, they have to squeeze production costs, uh, usually squeeze wages, potentially reducing employment. And all these things mean that actually on the medium term, you may have a reduction in consumption, right? And this is a, a, a vicious cycle. Now, put that as well into the context of highly indebted economies, and you get a quite toxic cocktail. Why? Because the value of the debts remain the same, they're nominal, whereas wages, potentially, and incomes are actually being reduced. And therefore, you increase the debt-to-income ratios. It doesn't matter whether debts are private or public. Basically, you may trigger or help debt crisis Occurring. Okay, so people are less able to pay off the debts that exactly. they are. So the danger here is uh, deflation. What can governments do about that? The, the problem now is that governments have exhausted their possibilities uh, in terms of conventional monetary policy. So what governments have been doing is slashing their interest rates to virtually zero. Yeah. So you can, in theory, borrow at an extremely low interest rates, and in theory, normal circumstances. This should lead to more consumption, more people borrowing, more investment in the economy and so on. That's not happening. This means that current monetary policy is ineffective. Now, what you could do are quite radical things on the monetary policy front, right? So you could, for example, reduce interest rates to negative interest rates, uh, which is uh, kind of, you know, futuristic as a concept. Well, if you have money in the bank, the money in the bank is basically being reduced on a year-by-year -year basis. It's a negative interest rate. And this is done to incite consumption uh, or investment today. Oh, so people don't want to keep the money in the bank because it's being whittled away, so they'll spend Exactly. It. Now, okay. you wow. cannot do that in, in an economy where cash cash circulates, right? Because this means that you would go and take out all your cash tonight, 
because you know that this cash will be worth more tomorrow and if you leave it in the bank it's going to have less value but in an economy which is uh, based on credit cards and so on so assuming you ab- we actually didn't have any banknotes this could potentially work but as i said it's completely futuristic Uh, The second way you could do it is through another, a different form of quantitative easing, uh, such as something like people's quantitative easing, where the central bank would actually transfer money directly to households and expect that to revive the economy and inflation. The third way to do it is through direct state investment in the economy. But this is what Western governments are not willing to do, particularly in the UK, right? You, can, you can't imagine Josh Dosborn starting suddenly spending in infrastructure and so on across the country to revive the economy. So basically, in order to tackle deflation, right now we'd need a completely different form of monetary policy or different public investment policies. Okay, so you've given us um, three, well, I mean, one futuristic option, two other options. You've given us three options there, but it doesn't sound like that's something that George Osborne's going to do particularly willingly. What happens now? Well, I'm afraid even mainstream policymakers will be forced to start thinking about unconventional policies because, as we can very clearly see, uh, the, the, the aftermath of 2008 drags on and on and on. And this is precisely because we haven't thought and managed to design policies which are outside the mainstream box. So you've alluded to uh, the uh, problem of debt throughout this episode. Could a debt crisis take us uh, over the edge in 2016? So the problem of debt is multifaceted between public, private debt, countries that have an independent monetary policy, others that do not, and so on and so forth. High debts can be resolved in three ways. One way is high inflation. The other way is very high growth rates, which would presuppose much more active state involvement to revive the economy. And a third way is to actually is debt forgiveness through defaults. In order to avoid defaults, you need either of the two first scenarios. So we'd need a consistently high rate of inflation, definitely not deflation, uh, or very high growth. Clearly, that's not what we're seeing right now. So the reason for which debt is hanging over us and cripples the global economy is precisely because we haven't managed to design policies which actually increase our income, increase the performance of the economies and therefore our capacity to repay them or wipe them out slowly, as happened, for example, in post-1945 Europe. Okay, so it sounds like 2008 is hanging over us like a disgusting New Year's hangover, Olivier. <laughs> uh, I look forward to seeing how some of these things, um, or I don't look forward to seeing how some of these things play out over the course of the year. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So, gang, you've made it this far, uh, and if you like what you've heard and want others to hear it too, please send it to a friend, uh, leave us a cheeky review on iTunes, and at the very least, please give us some stars. We'll be back at the same time next week. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.